Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzad. It's no secret, and you can Google it, that Google is a dream place to work. All that free food and creative thinking time and outsized profits and coveted stock options, the internet behemoth draws more than 2 million job applicants a year. So getting an offer is about 10 times more difficult than getting into Harvard, I read. Even so, Saurabh Madan was until recently a beloved data scientist at Google, until he decided to move to Richmond, Virginia to become an executive at a specialty insurance company. Hmm. Which necessarily means I just had to book him on full disclosure for the unlikely backstory. Stay with us. Full Disclosure is sponsored by our good friends at Elwood Thompson's. You know I love that place because I'm there almost every day. No joke, at the top of Carytown, on top of being there on the corner of Elwood and Thompson Street since 1989. I mean, they're now introducing Elwood Thompson's Cafe at VCU, which is going to open up the Institute for Contemporary Art. Elwood's will be serving up raw juice, fresh smoothies, Blanchard's coffee, tea, beer, wine, cider, breakfast sandwiches, and vegan wraps. It's a gorgeous building, getting a ton of press. Whether you prefer it in Carytown or over there, downtown Richmond, Elwood Thompson has you covered. Also, check them out at elwoodthompsons.com. Joining us in our studios in historic downtown RVA is a newcomer to this town, Saurabh Madan. I'm pronouncing it correctly, yes? Yes, you are. This is a huge catch for this town because I'm reading a rare press release from Markel that went out in January that says, Markel announced today that Saurabh Madan, a senior data scientist at Google, has been hired as managing director investments. Prior to joining Markel, Madan was with Google since 2010, and his most recent role was senior data scientist. During your tenure at Google, you taught an award-winning leadership and teamwork course across the globe, and you also led the Talks at Google investing series, where you have interviewed many of the world's best investors. Um, sir, that's a, I mean, you're supposed to hold on to that for life. I mean, what possibly <laughs> convinced you to come to this specialty insurer? Uh, well, it was not, not a plan. It was serendipity. So I have admired... Tom Gaynor for a long time, not just uh, how he does investments, but also how he leads his life. Let's uh, let's clarify. He was on our show. Tom Gaynor is co-CEO of Markel, and he's been nicknamed the Baby Buffett, right? You've seen him profiled in the Wall Street Journal. And he told me parenthetically after he did this show a couple of months ago that you have to interview my deputy. Well, Tom is a fantastic, fabulous person, just some, someone I look up to in terms of uh, how you want to live your life. So besides being a successful investor, he's a legendary investor, I should say. He's also a fantastic parent, uh, a, a very good husband, very, very good person all in all. So Tom and I, have, since uh, his talk at Google and my visit uh, to the Berkshire meeting and the Markel meetings, have kept in touch for several years. And I was visiting Tom socially, and now he tells me the rest of the story um, during our visit, uh, his wife Susan asked him, does Saurabh know that this is a soft interview? And Tom's answer was, he does not know yet, but by the end of the weekend, he will. And that's essentially what happened. And Tom said, hey, would you like to come over? And if Tom says, come over, you don't think about it. You make him sound like Don Corleone. 
<laughs> well, he's better than that. He, he's, he, he has more effective ways of persuasion. <laughs> well, connect the dots for me here because you got your bachelor's of technology degree from the Institute, Indian Institute of Technology, which is super selective itself. You got your master of science and engineering from UPenn and a master of science in physics from the University of Waterloo. When did you have some sort of investing revelation? I mean, for anybody who wants to look it up, um, the the talk series at Google is quite storied. You've had some amazing people who've pounced on the opportunity to go and talk and, and present themselves in very candid fashion to the rarefied workforce of Google. And so in that process, and you're also a voracious reader, did you become a value investor? How did that happen? So, you know, Albert Einstein is quoted to have said that don't let your education interfere with your learning. And I've never gone to a business school, never taken uh, formal schooling in an MBA program or anything like that. However, at the same time, investing is kind of a liberal art where if you're a voracious reader, you like connecting the dots between different fields. This is one where you can bring it all together and actually make a living out of it. So I was not really actually fascinated by investing. To be honest, I thought investing is not a big value added to society. And I still believe... <laughs> Wall Street on balance takes value from society, but go ahead, sir. Yeah, no, I still believe that, you know, if, if a lot of us just became investors, it's not necessarily good for society. So it is important to have doctors, teachers, lawyers, educators, and so on. Having said that, my journey here was more out of serendipity, where I grew up in a small middle-class family in India and never really had uh, much money to spend, let alone invest. But uh, when I started working and I started saving a little bit, I started thinking about how I want to grow this. And I had known about Warren Buffett by then. I had seen his interviews, just admired the rationality of the person, uh, not so much the investing side. But I started reading as much as I could about investing. And there came a point where I knew that I could learn only so much from just reading. So I started getting in touch with the world's best investors. And through the talks at Google program, we were fortunate enough to be able to host them, talk to them, and learn from them. So that was essentially my schooling over the last five to 10 years, if you will. Uh, and that's how I got into it. So in parallel, we had Tom Gaynor, your, your mentor, your boss, on the show. He said that he read this uh, article in Fortune magazine in the early 1980s, and he called the guy Warren Buffet, right? <laughs> and and uh, you know the person who ever was at Davenport or something told him, it's Buffett and get out of my office. <laughs> and you also, you know, you with before you, you even heard of Tom Gaynor, you saw Warren Buffett being interviewed on TV and something. What was it? The simplicity? Was this before Google? Yes. This was when I was in IIT. I... I think I was watching a show on Charlie Rose where Warren Buffett was being interviewed probably around the 2004, 2005 timeframe. And I just thought the way he rattled off statistics and, and how to the point he was, how logical and rational he was. He was someone who was talking about the benefits of getting an ovarian lottery. As the ovarian lottery. I remember he came and spoke to Harvard Business School. He said so yeah. much of it is is who you were born to and the privilege you have. Yes. And he said he if he, had he been born at a different time 
or in a different part of the world, even with the same talents, the outcomes would have been totally different. So he was humble and modest and rational enough to understand that luck and skill both play a role. And I was on the other side of the world in India, and I could directly relate to what he was saying. But it was it was really nice uh, to hear him talk about, you know, not just investing, but about things that are good in the world, how we should conduct our lives, how we should run things, how politicians should think. So that was uh, that was really what struck with me first. Sarah, before we get into, you know, the unlikely, your, your plucking by Google, I believe it happened, what, in 2010, tell me about your childhood and uh, the filter and getting into IIT and the competition system and the, you know, the, 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 the it's so daunting, I guess, being born and raised in this massive country, which is growing and has these growing pangs and is trying to hold on to people and people are leaving and going abroad. Walk me back to childhood. Sure. I actually want to maybe take a step even further back. Um, Take me back to when you were an embryo. (laughs) Let's go even further. How about that? My grandfather, actually my grandfather, who's... uh, who's uh, still living uh, and works out of Amritsar, was actually born in what was then uh, India, but is now called Pakistan. So he was, I think, seven or eight years old when they said the country was going to be divided. So if you were not of a certain religion, you had to leave Pakistan and come uh, to what was now going to be the new India. So to cut a long story short, it was a very tragic walk of a several hundred kilometers from their small village in Pakistan where they left all their friends and, you know, lots of relations behind. Very painful walk to the other side. And my grandfather told me this story. He said, when I came to Amritsar, I didn't uh, even have clothes. Forget about money. So he went to this uh, park where there was a tree and he just lay down to relax. And he he took something to eat from a fruit probably from the tree and then he he took one extra and he tried to sell it in the streets of Amritsar. So he started his life there, had six kids, he educated them. Those kids, they educated us. Uh, but compared to the struggles that that generation had to go through, I mean, we've had a cakewalk since. So I consider myself very fortunate but uh, I take a lot of inspiration from the way my grandfather continues to lead his life with a lot of optimism, with a lot of perseverance. When did you first have an appreciation for money? When were you taught about what a rupee buys or saving money or uh, mom and dad go to work for money? It was very intuitive because we had seen our grandfather just work hard, try to get by. Uh, and yet he's a very generous person. So... We always knew that money was a means to an end, not an end in itself, but something that we wanted to uh, be respectful of. So my mom and dad, for example, they had modest government jobs, and and they always said, get a good education, because if you don't, look at all the homeless people on the street. You're going to be one of them. <laughs> and, and it was you know typical lower-middle-class Indian parenting where you knew you just had to work uh, as much as you can, as hard as you can, just to get beyond the threshold of uh, the poverty line. What was your What was your first day in the West like? 
walk me back to that coming to this hemisphere? <laughs> well, um, I came uh, to Penn as a grad student first. And and I had a fascinating... Uh, so you just first... flew into Philadelphia directly? I, I flew into Philadelphia. I knew no one in this country. Uh, I didn't have any immediate family here uh, in the U.S. And I had a few hundred dollars with me. Uh, but I didn't know where I was going to live. So I was I I got myself in touch with an Indian student who was studying at Penn. So I stayed with them for one evening and then got myself a place to stay uh, in the student dorm and uh, stayed there. But the first few days were interesting because, you know, people pronounce your name differently. And... And I've now gotten used to various permutations and combinations of how my name can be pronounced. But at the same time, it's fascinating to see just a different kind of infrastructure in the United States. You know, when someone comes here for the first time, you're enamored by how nice things are, how big things are. Um, you go to a bookshop and and, and there's, there's a lot of room for you to just walk through. And, and I hadn't been used to that coming from a small city in India. But at the same time, it was also interesting that we had an international student orientation at that time. And they said, well, if you go beyond a certain street, be very mindful that you have someone with you after 6 p.m. in the evening. We've heard reports of gunshots. So I was... I was almost uh, shocked and panicked and surprised to hear that because I thought I was coming into the developed world where everything is better and secure and everything else. Uh, so, 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 yeah, that was my first uh, f- couple of days in the United States. Well, did you hop a train and check out New York City and everything? Did you, did o- you fully— Over time, yes. It took you a while to kind of yes. span out? Yes, yes. It took me a while. I I wanted to settle down first, and school was starting, and I think I just came three, four days before the school started. So I it was first year of graduate school, very, very hectic. But uh, over time, I learned how to take the bus, take the train, go to New York, and, and I went to Times Square, took a lot of selfies, and uh, and, and shared my pictures with mom and dad, and, and that was it. You took a selfie with a Razor phone? <laughs> It was not a razor phone, but we used to have something back in the day. This was probably in 2007 and 8, and I wow. think we had some. When did Google come knocking? How did that happen? Well, I was I did another graduate program in the University of Waterloo where I studied theoretical physics. And I remember one uh, snowy day, someone from California called me and they said, we would like to call you to California for an interview. And it was the middle of winter, and when they said California and my, I imagined sunny weather, I kept saying yes, yes, yes after that. And I came to uh, California a week later and had my interview. Did you apply to Google or was this a headhunter calling you unsolicited? I think these are what uh, are called, it's called a sourcing team. So I had applied to Google before, but I hadn't heard back from Google after. So a few months later, maybe a year later, um, I actually heard back from the sourcing team. And they said, we want someone with a quantitative bent, but who would also be interested in the qualitative aspects of things. So I actually started my career at Google in Google HR. 
So wait, hold up. You were studying physics yes. in this master's program yes. at University of Waterloo. Yes. So you're in Canada. Yes. And you get a call from Google. Yes. All right. The world is crazy, right? Because as you understand, there are millions of people who are trying to get in front of Google. Right. right. And you hear stories that, that there are these things all over Business Insider that the five things that they look at in the first five seconds of your resume. So you were brought in as HR? Yes. But you were an engineer. Yes. They actually wanted someone with quantitative um, skills to help automate um, some of the processes in HR and to help make them more efficient and more intelligent and more algorithmic. And Google is a very, very special place. We have computer scientists working in HR, computer scientists working in sales, and we also have people with liberal arts uh, uh, degrees working in different parts of Google. So it's it's been a very special place, and I and I got to appreciate that once I started there. Do you miss the cafeteria? Uh, I can't say no. I I do, uh, and I and I. But most of all, I miss miss the colleagues and friends uh, that I used to work with. You know, what's amazing to me in, in looking at this is that you were able to source something there that had so much respect with the Google Talk series and these investors coming and talking there and how you cross paths with the likes of Tom Gaynor to begin with. I guess when you do have Google on your resume and you're inviting somebody to come out west and, and you know, come up to the Mountain View area or maybe stay in San Francisco overnight and speak to these people who are highly interested, who are encouraged at work on a Maslowian level, they're getting all of their insecurities taken care of. Job job security, great. Food security, all this stuff. You get, you know, vesting is happening. You get a day of week. This is all legend to do creative endeavors and, 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 and be skunk work-like. So how did you pitch this series and how was it received um, was it kind of a perk for HR people? Did they come to you and say, we want to see people outside our field? So, you know, Google is a special place in many aspects, but Google has what is known as the Talks at Google program, which had been running way before I joined Google itself. And as a Google employee, uh, you know, you get to interact with visiting guests and some of the people who've spoken with talks at Google have included, uh, you know, our ex-presidents, uh, politicians, celebrities, you know, Lady Gaga's visited us. So at Google, so for me, my interest was more into value investing. So I got myself in touch with the people that were running talks at Google and over time became a part of the team and I had been reading so much in value investing that I knew the people that I wanted to invite and talk to and interact with. And when, you know, I sincerely wrote, uh, let's say, an email to someone like Tom saying, hey, this is what I've read about you. This is what I've liked. And this is what I'm curious about. If you're ever around the area, would you mind coming by Google and giving a talk through our talks at Google program? And uh, we, we've been lucky enough, we were fortunate enough to have some of the best investors come visit with us, talk to us. And I think one of the nicer things were, was that these talks are put up online, not just for Google employees, but for anyone in the world who's interested in the subject to just watch. I have to tell you, I am, I am hurt and incensed that Tom Gaynor gave a talk to Google before he came on my show. 
I mean, this is full disclosure, Tom. You know, growth at a reasonable price, Tom. Come on. You know, buy and hold. <laughs> Let me go back 10 years. Do you remember when you started at Google? What month and date, roughly? Uh, roughly, uh, I think June 2010. June 2010, Google stock, if you look it up now, it's called Alphabet Inc., was at $221. It last traded at $1,037. The market capitalization is at $725 billion. I remember I did a big story for Business Week when Google broke a $100 billion market cap, which seems so quaint now. Um, this kind of forces a lot of interesting things. You have all of these paper millionaires suddenly, these engineers at Google and these coveted people who are getting job offers left and right from, from unicorns, from Facebook, from other places, you know this is an HR person, but who are having to bone up on investing in finance and markets. So there's this meeting of the worlds and there's a hunger and there's a thirst for it. Speak to that. I think the Bay Area is a very special place. Within a 15 to 20 mile radius, you have Facebook, Google, Apple, LinkedIn, uh, Salesforce, Workday, lots of other offices as well. And you have startups, you have people working in their garages and dorm rooms trying to in innovate. And there is not a stigma attached to failure and risk-taking. In fact, you're encouraged to take risks, to try things out. And in my time at Google, you know, despite all the things that you mentioned, I have found that the people that I've worked with have been some of the most smart, but also the most humble people. So I think it's, it's an atmosphere that attracts that kind of a crowd. And no wonder it's done so well for America and the world. And I think it's going to continue to innovate over the next several decades. Full disclosure, I'm Robin Farzai. We're talking to Sarab Madan. He is Managing Director of Investments at Markel, newly minted. Prior to this, he was a senior data scientist and an HR guru at Google. You very rarely see that happen. You see um, you know, star people at Google who have vested and done well go to other places like Hulu and, I don't know, places that are about to go public that can give them other, other options. It's very rare <laughs> to see somebody plucked from uh, that plum gig to be brought to the uh, world of value investing in Richmond, Virginia, no less. I want you to take me back, Saurabh, to when you first got your, you know, unsolicited wealth management pitch or something. If one of these, you know, Fisher Investments or robo-advisors or something came to you, this would be roughly six years after you first realized who Warren Buffett was. So did you have people showing up with pitch books saying, I'm the person why you want to, you want to, you know, take some money off the table and invest it with me? Well, there is no dearth of people that, uh, you know, everyone from a financial agent to a banker to, to anyone that you do business with. In the finance world, there is no dearth of people trying to make money off of you. And I think one of the nicest things was having read John Bogle, uh, who's the founder of Vanguard, and he's a person who started, you know, the index fund um, revolution in America. And you know him much better than I do because uh, you've interacted with him. So he's a, someone I consider a hero of mine. And I had read his books and I knew that one of the best ways, if you want to become rich in the long term, 
versus trying to become rich off of a lottery ticket overnight is to just spend less than what you make and invest the rest in a piece of America through indexing. And these pitches have come, you know, since I started working at Google, but I think uh, I've never paid attention to it. I've, I always knew what the core message of John What Google is it was. like? Do they like to take people out to a nice dinner or take over? I mean, it must be hard <laughs> to get time of day and attention from not just, not just the paper millionaires at Google, but you look at Facebook, you look at, gosh, you know, even a Kickstarter or somebody like an Uber, these people who are about to have what they call huge liquidity events, but have not, like you say, they didn't take business or finance courses. They didn't grow up with people like Peter Lynch or others that they're newcomers to the world of investing. Yes. So I've never been personally in that situation because I never um, was about to vest a startup. I started at Google pretty low in the ranks. And then, uh, but I have friends who've been in these situations and I've uh, closely... You're telling me you lived in a in a van by the Bay, you know, <laughs> no, no, no. San Francisco Bay or something? <laughs> you didn't live in Atherton? You didn't have to deal with all of these difficulties in public private school and cost of living? I mean, it's notorious, the cost yes. of living there yes. right now. Yes, yes. I think it was much better when I uh, came to the Bay Area. It, it was getting pretty crazy when we actually moved back to Richmond. And to ask you about the culture shock of that, when you say, you, you, you know, you're, you're still love and in touch with your grandfather who was yes. penniless and shirtless and literally almost it sounds like an Adam and Eve story, like fruit fell off a tree <laughs> and you have to start from scratch and create a whole new level of humanity after separation. Right, right. Um, you show up at, <laughs> I mean, you're hired, you're given a, a salary there, but there's enormous cost of living inflation. Oh, oh yes. It is very, very hard. And, and especially with the laws in California that, you know, you have, you don't have the kind of dense that you have, let's say, in New York or elsewhere. But uh, the cost of living and longer commutes and more expensive schooling is making it hard. Uh, so my wife, for example, is a full-time mom. So even while working at Google, it wasn't the easiest thing just to you know, get by. But uh, you know, I've had no complaints, uh, to be honest. But I think that over time, this leads to the place becoming a bubble of its own kind, and I hope it doesn't uh, turn into that. Were you able to save money at the outset, the first two years, for example, practice what Bogle and others preach? <laughs> well, we we wanted to buy a house. So, yes, we were trying to save as much as we could, and uh, we put in everything we had saved when we bought our house. So this is an impolite question, but you got to go short <laughs> Bay Area property and Google stock and go long <laughs> Richmond and Markel stock, right? Yes. yes That's so. a pretty great trade. Well, I, I'm not complaining. <laughs> <laughs> I want to get at um, indexing. You and I spoke about it when mm -hmm. we met. Mm -hmm. um, you do have you, you do profess this respect for um, Jack Bogle and that school of thought. And as I've said before many times on this show, be the market. Don't beat the market. Yes. I mean – the, the, the incremental friction that you can do with, uh, with, with funky products and commodities and everything else is really just going to frustrate you over the long run. The S&P 500, for all of its flaws, market cap weighted, you can buy these things now. They're competing on cost for you know three basis points. It's so unbelievable how uh, democratized it's become, even compared to 10 or 20 years ago when, or, or, or 40 years ago with the commission structure. Um, 
And yet you're working with this respected, quote unquote, active investor, a person who's taking the idiosyncratic, you know, the, the, the premiums that are coming in from a great underwriting business and is being a great eye at finding value and finding people. I mean, talks about this, you know, this plants business in Miami. I mean, hmm. I was raised in Miami. I wouldn't invest Costa. in anything there. He found two great businesses yes. in Miami. Yes. And he has an eye for people and he has this thing. And if you look at the record and how much he's increased book value and how much Markel has obliterated the S&P 500, um, you know, it, it kind of flies in the face of indexing in a way. Yes and no. Let me first talk about indexing. And and I think this is indexing is, is something that you can take advantage of even if, if you have no knowledge of, you know, active investing and so on. So on average, if you study the stock market over the last 60, 70 years, you find that uh, the index itself has compounded at about 6.7% every year. And if you add in, in real terms and nominal terms, um, no, this is just uh, nominal terms. Uh-huh. But if you add in the dividends, dividends, yes, which is about two and a half percent, you can make a case for you know nine to ten percent returns uh, over time if you are just dollar cost averaging the index. So if you just understand the math of compounding, which I think everyone should just spend some time just imagining or thinking about. I'm still amazed at how few people know the average annual return you need to double your money every 10 years. They throw out crazy numbers right. if you ask someone. They'll say, oh, 20%. No. When in fact, the rule of 72, yes. it's much more modest. It's much more doable from a historic market perspective. I mean, put aside CAPE and, and elevated valuations for a while. That very kind of mundane, slow as you go, reinvest your dividends. It's you know, the thing, the problem is, Sarb, is no one is paid to tell you this. Like, no brokerage <laughs> firm, no advisory is there to tell you that simplicity kind of gets you 95% of the way there. Well, I encourage your readers to look at this blog called Mr. Money Mustache. And I think he's done a terrific job of just laying this out. Another thing that I would recommend is uh, a book called The Simple Path to Wealth which also lays it out. But let's just walk through the math here because I think this is what intimidates people. And let's do it so that you know we take some of that fear away. At 10%, you are roughly doubling your money every seven years. So if you are going to, if you think that you're going to save over the next 30, 40 years, in 40 years, if you are doubling every seven years, you'll roughly have six doubles, 42 years, right? Six doubles is two to the six, which is 64, which means every dollar that you put in today will become $64. And this is you just investing in the index. The very basic table rules come in. Yes. Nothing fancy, no broker necessary. No broker, just go to Vanguard invest in the total stock market or the S&P 500 index, Vanguard charges you the least fees that anyone else can charge you. Well, there's actually a fee war right now going on, which I think yes. people don't pay much attention to. Which is good for us. Yeah, it's right? great for you. Forget that the you know you still see, if you turn on CNBC or Bloomberg, these are brokerage commission ads. I don't know who's paying commission to buy single <laughs> stocks anymore. It's fun every now and then just to keep yes. things interesting if you think something is really uh, valued and, and uh, disrupted and idiosyncratic. But for the most part, um, you know, and I started my career in, in wealth management on Wall Street. I like not paying attention to the market. I yes. like, 
It's, it's cliche. It's so cliche being greedy when other people are fearful. Right. When we realize we hit a 10% trigger, to my mind, it's more like being able to buy something on sale, like the old Macy's one day sales on uh, mm-hmm. Wednesdays that my mom would encourage me to go to when I was in middle, middle school, right? You can buy a, a polo shirt yes. for 20% less than the normal sticker price. People don't look at it that way. In fact, they there's fear and loathing. We recently had a spike in the VIX and volatility, and it's, it's so... Um, it's so kind of uh, doom overwhelmingly, yeah. right? There have been studies done that have shown that, you know, when these big uh, brokerages, they look at the best performing client portfolios, they've found that the best portfolios were those uh, where the clients had either forgotten they had an account or they were dead. They hadn't done activity. So this is an area where activity can be an enemy of your returns, where it pays to be a little more detached and more long-term in your thinking. As Bogle likes to say, don't just do something, sit there. Sit there, yes. And, and do live your regular life. Enjoy doing the things that you enjoy doing. If you're a writer, do your writing. If you want to record a radio show, do 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 that. But I'm impoverished, Sarah. What do you recommend? <laughs> <laughs> this is the interesting thing is, I, you know, it gets cliche with me too, but um, I know that I was getting a crazy, crazy number of calls from panic friends and relatives in March and February of 2009, and that mm-hmm. should have been such a strong contraindicator. Yes. You know, if I was more liquid... Yeah. To say that, gosh, there has to be some capitulation. If it makes no sense at some point, you know, are you? It's kind of binary. Either the United States economy falls apart or it doesn't. And what are the odds of it falling apart? Right. So here, here is what I would recommend. If you were, let's do time travel. You're in 2009, and you're wondering, is the market going to go down or up next day, next month, next year? I just encourage you to think of widening your time horizon. You say, let me think about what the market will do over the next 20 years or the next 10 years. If you if you can have that sort of a time horizon, you just say that every two weeks or every month when I get my paycheck, I'm going to save a little bit and invest a little bit. And I will invest through the good times and through the bad times. And I will stay disciplined. And I know that my time horizon is large, so over time, I will do well. What do you say to all these people that are saying that's fair enough, but we are at such peak chunky valuations right now? We haven't seen anything like this since, well, 2000 or 1928. And (laughs) you know what? I increasingly look at the world. You and I can share this in that we have similar age sons. I look at the world through his time horizons and T minus 10 years to college. And if we have a lost decade... Well, maybe I should worry more about saving and capital preservation than trying to get capital gains in the market. Well, there are some simple rules in personal finance. And if you read Mr. Money Mustache blog, I think uh, they will become clear. One of the rules is that, uh, first of all, have some sort of emergency funds for yourself. You know, things that you expect to to come up unexpectedly over the next two to three months. Try to save a rainy day fund over time. That would be, you know, step number one. Step number two would, would be expenses that you foresee coming over the next three to four years. Try not to put them into the stock market. And then for, for, for things where you have a time horizon greater than five years, that's where you start investing them into the stock market. 
And regardless of the valuations, well, I actually wrote, um, I did an analysis. If you do a Google search for S&P 500 on the weighing machine, I think it might come up. Yeah, you sent me the article. Yes. So so here, simple math. I'll just, let me just show you. You know, if you have GDP real growth of 2 to 3%, and if you have, you know, inflation of another 3%, you're talking about 5 or 6% growth in the earnings of underlying businesses that make America. And if you put in 1% buybacks or efficiencies and add in 2.5% dividends, this basic math tells you that, you know, companies, if if these trends in GDP growth continue, companies should give you over time, you know, somewhere between 8 to 10% with dividends reinvested. Over a period of one or two years, you might have the market going up or down. Even but again, you went from 1960 to 2016. Yes. Is it possible to look at data going back to these people who try to normalize, for example, uh, PEs or bond yields going back to the you know Dutch in, Dutch East India Tea Company? <laughs> I always wonder how you do apples to apples. I mean, we haven't had the S and P 500 forever. Yes, we haven't. Uh, but you know you. Um, and this is where the you know the statistics person comes in, the quantitative person comes yes. in, and is past necessarily prologue. Well, there is a book called *Sapiens* that traces the history of mankind, and I think Jeremy Siegel at Wharton, if I recall correctly, has written a book *Stocks for the Long Run*. Uh, and essentially, the nature of compounding is so back-ended that most of your returns come in the later half. So that is why having a long time horizon matters. And all of these studies have shown in various different ways that no matter how you look at it, investing in real businesses and in a diverse set of businesses has turned out to work over long term. In fact, Warren Buffett, if I recall correctly, has in one of his talks mentioned that uh, the price that was paid to purchase Manhattan, the area, had that been invested in an index fund, would have done much better, despite the real estate They prices. say the same thing about Donald Trump, actually. Donald <laughs> Trump, upon his inheritance, if it was Trump properties versus, you know, he's been wiped out in the market so many times, if you'd simply put it into an index fund. Yeah, I haven't done the analyses. Well, that's where, that's where, you know, and to get to the here and now, by the way, we're talking yeah. to Saurabh Madan, Managing Director of Investments at Markel. He was a star hire from Google, which makes it so... You know, you have to get down to the bottom of the story, and there's no way we could possibly do it in the in the time we're allotted to this show, especially because you're such a, you know, you're a voracious polymath, and you do so much reading, and, um, you know, we could just have you on continuously. Um, but I want to get to your here and now at, <laughs> at Markel. I know you're still trying to get your sea legs here. How are you going to kind of splay out? How are you going to use the skill set in the past, learning, you know, uh, in, in, in Tom Gaynor's shadow, and putting these things to use? as he's looking to buy things, as he's looking to grow the company. It's not an easy thing to do. It's not a tiny company anymore. It's definitely on the radar. As you know, you go to Berkshire now, and there are a lot of Tom Gaynor people looking to pull him aside. Yes. So that's a great question. Thanks for asking. Actually, Markel, from everything that I had read about Markel, and now seeing it firsthand, living and breathing through it, I think it's a very, very special place. And what makes it special, in my opinion, and different people might have different answers, but my my answer to that would be the culture, the Markel style. The Markel CEOs, the Markel leaders, they are very humble, very approachable. There is 
a conservatism built into how the company operates. And even, uh, you know, in investing, which is where I spend a lot of my time, I noticed that, uh, you know, to Warren Buffett's credit, he's right when he says it's not the incremental IQ points that matter. He says you should actually go and sell them, but it's the temperament that differentiates. And for me to watch Tom day in and day out, that's the, that's the thing that I pick up on. Um, in our office, you cannot tell whether the market is up or down. It's, it's, it's a very, I think it's nice to be away from Wall Street in that sense, but it's also nice to have a long-term thinking horizon in that sense. Uh, whether the market is up or down, most of the time we are actually buying quality businesses because we are thinking of not what's going to happen next day or quarter or even next year. We are thinking of the long term. And the principles of investments are really very simple. You know, the four principles that Tom laid out when he visited Google, you know, strong businesses with high returns on capital and low debt, that's number one, with managements that are good, number two, Number three is their ability to reinvest into their own business and continue to compound. And number four is a reasonable price. So it's uh, it's not rocket science, if you ask me. It's not even the kind of sophisticated data science I was doing before. But it's synthesizing knowledge from different disciplines in making business decisions and then having the temperament and discipline to hold for the long term. Are you traveling with Tom? Are you going out and, and, and looking at prospective investors? I mean, I'm sure he's getting no shortage of calls. Like, you know, <laughs> no, it's, a, it's a great alternative to going to a private equity shop or kind of a strip and flip thing. I mean, um, some people have to tap strategic investors, financial investors. You have a, a rare person who's willing to look at the whites of the eye and appreciate people for culture and management and actually keep them in their roles. Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. People that want to associate with Markel are the only people that Markel would want to associate with, right? This is not like a private equity kind of a business. So let's say you had a business that you cared deeply about, but you also wanted some liquidity. Let's say, uh, you know, a business was going through a generational change. Well, they could go to a private equity firm. The private equity firm, uh, typically their modus operandi has been to acquire the business, take on a bunch of debt, um, then do some restructuring, cost cutting, which usually means firing uh, some people, and then making inflated profits, and then over five to seven years try to sell the business again. That's how they make their money. But if you care deeply about your business, and if you care deeply about the people that are involved in the business, then a partner like Markel makes a lot more sense. Because as Tom likes to say, we have two horizons, right now and forever. Right now, we want to associate with people that are like-minded, and we want to be associated with them forever. So our time horizon is forever. And, and, and that's the kind of, it's a certain mindset that it takes to attract that. And that's the kind of mindset that Markel wants to attract. Do you worry as this company gets big? I mean, there's 16,000 employees now. The market capitalization is $16 billion. To the best of my knowledge, it's not yet in the S&P 500. I mean, talking about the index. <laughs> you know, and, and, I, and it's, it's amazing how many people 
Um, really, in value investing circles, I've heard of it. In, in financial services and insurance underwriting, I've heard of it. But outside, it, you know, Tom is happy to fly under the radar. He doesn't need the press, doesn't need the publicity. Yeah, it actually works well because it gives you time to think in your own detached way. And you don't come under unnecessary spotlight. And and I'm not actually sure whether whether we are still not in S&P 500. Uh, you know, they reevaluate their thresholds every now and then. So if we aren't there in the most recent one, I would consider it just a matter of time. And to the other part of your question about Markel being large and how does this culture sustain? When I started at Google, it was, I think, a 10,000 people company, if I recall correctly, and now must be somewhere around 70 to 80,000 people. And Google takes its, its culture very seriously from, from my experience being there. And my experience at, at Markel is very similar. Markel takes its culture very, very seriously. So I'm very optimistic. I think uh, there's a lot of room to grow. There's a lot of interesting businesses that we want to associate with. And there's a lot more to do in the public market investing. So these are the three engines of Markel, insurance, wholly owned businesses, and public market. I think there's room to go grow in all three markets. And where our paths have crossed and what I'm fascinated in, in terms of bringing people to town for you know national show reasons, are you going to continue some semblance of what you had at the Google Talks momentum, I mean, the past three, four years, maybe at Markel? Yes and no. But, you know, yes, and yes, because, you know, these things happen out of serendipity. And just the nature of things uh, and the kind of person I am, I love learning and associating with people that that encourage learning. I believe that, you know, if uh, if if you are like-minded people and everyone's excited about becoming better, knowledge sharing helps with that. So we have groups of employees at Markel that organize various events. Uh, we actually have a group called the Jitneys uh, that organize talks, and I wouldn't be surprised if we started having uh, authors and and other personalities in the area come and visit with us. But at the same time, it may not necessarily be exactly the same format and scale as Google Talks. I mean, it will be done the Markel way. Close me out. Tell me what's on your mind. Tell me what you're excited about. I mean, outside of investing, people can go and check you out on, on, on Twitter and some of the posts that I'll put up. You are a voracious reader across I mean, everything. You've read books about mourning, about investing, about marketing, about uh, uh, you know autobiographies, historical figures. What's on your nightstand right now? I'm reading a book called Factfulness. This was recommended by Bill Gates and was written by Hans Rosling. And I think it's an amazing book. It tells you how child mortality rates have come down so much. Um, if I ask you a simple question, in the low-income countries, what percentage of girls finish schools? Is it 20%, 30%, 40%? What's your answer? I would think 30%. If I recall correctly, it was higher than 60%. Mm. So I'm reading Factfulness, and, and it's making me much more educated and optimistic about the world that you and I live in. And it makes me even more optimistic about the world that our kids are going to inherit and their kids are going to live in. And I think 
that uh, we have an instinct, which Hans Rosling calls the gap instinct. We like to divide things into two, the developed and the developing, the rich and the poor. Well, guess what? Given the trajectory of the human race, we're all getting better together. And it may not necessarily make a very uh, convenient narrative in how we've been used to talking about things, but it's a very optimistic and nice narrative about the world. So I would like to you know, recommend your readers read that, and, and I'm sure they'll become more and more optimistic about the world, but at the same time, based on real facts. Sarah Madan, Managing Director of Investments at Markel, ex-Google head, now turned value investor extraordinaire. I cannot thank you enough. I welcome you to the RVA. I'm so excited that you're here. It was great to meet you and your family, and um, hit me up, whatever you need. Well, thank you so much, Robin, for having me. And I'm so excited to be in the Richmond, Virginia community here. It's a fantastic place. And I think there's continuity of family and relationships and a lot of balance. Uh, I think this is a fantastic place. My family is enjoying. And thanks again. It was a delight to be here. With and wait till you try the donuts, my man. Full disclosure, <laughs> our engineer is the venerable John Valentine at Audio Image. Catch us and love us on NPR One, great app, and on iTunes at FullDRadio.com. We are on Twitter at FullDRadio, on Facebook.com slash FullDRadio. Holler to sponsor this fine show. I'm Robin Farzad. Back with you next week. Oh.